They believe God is in everything. So they believe that God's in the trees, perhaps in animals and so forth, in nature, and they see gods and goddesses in everything. Welcome to the Walk in Truth Minisode, a step closer, where Pastor Michael Lance and others on the Walk in Truth team discuss topics and questions about life from a Christian perspective. You'll also get a chance to get to know the team. Now, let's get into today's topic. All right, Acts 26, um, the Apostle Paul is before King Agrippa. That's how the chapter opens up. And Agrippa 26.1 of the book of Acts says to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. Whenever you see the word defense in your Bible, it's likely the word apologia or apologia, where we get the idea of apologetics. You may have heard that word before. We have a school here at Living Truth called Truth Academy. And one of the focuses of that school is to train people in apologetics. That's a big word. It doesn't mean that we're apologizing for anything. It does mean that we are making a defense, a rational, reasoned defense for the historic Christian faith. The Apostle Paul was an apologist. That is, he went around the Roman world making a defense for the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he would go into towns and he would start in the synagogue. Since he was a Jewish man, he had grown up in the tribe of Benjamin. And he would go in and he would reason with the Jewish people. Just like we would come into a church setting and talk about the Lord, Paul would go into a synagogue setting and he would set the uh, like an Old Testament prediction aside or by the side of a New Testament reality of Jesus, and he would compare the two and say, see, Jesus is the Christ. If you were to boil down Paul's ministry, that's pretty much what he did. He said to people, see, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. And so your job and my job is to go around our world and say to people, see, Jesus is the Christ. He's the hope of the world. People need hope. And so Paul was on trial for uh, what he preached, and there were many people against him. And here's what he says. This is uh, verse 6. He says, Now I'm standing trial, 26.6 of Acts, for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews." Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Why do you think it's amazing if God raises the dead? Why do you oppose the preaching of the resurrection? You guys say you believe in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God did what? Created the heavens and the earth. And by the way, he spoke it into existence by his mighty power. He calls the stars by name. He made the stars. He made the planets. He made the oceans. He made the fishes. Is that the right way to say fish? Or is it just singular fish? Anyway. He made everything. Why do you think it's incredible if he raises the dead too? Because he does. And he has. And he will. Amen. Amen. This is the hope that we have. Well, you guys are awake this morning. This is awesome. <laughs> now, Paul gets into his testimony in verse 12. He says, while thus 
verse 12, engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. Paul was opposed to Christianity in his former life. He was its chief persecutor. At midday, O king, verse 13, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. Wow, that's got to be a very bright light. Shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Why do you keep fighting God? Well, Paul might say, but I'm a religious man. I'm doing what I'm doing for the purpose of religion. Yeah, Paul, but even your religion is fighting against God. God has brought forth the Messiah and you must submit to him. And so he says, and I said, this is the next logical question. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I've appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Delivering you, verse 17, from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Here's your mission. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Consequently, King Agrippa, he says, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also uh, at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Now keep in mind, Paul is before the king. And Paul did not back down to say what the heavenly vision he received was. And he folded in his testimony. And when you're sharing with people at work or at school or wherever you may be, it's a good idea to fold in your testimony. Your testimony, your personal conversion story is not the end all, but it is a nice bridge because you're not just spouting theology or doctrine to people or teaching to people. You're actually saying, this is what happened to me. Now, your testimony is not the sole thing that you give because there are people of other religions who have a testimony as well. So you ultimately have to uh, preach the truth of Jesus Christ. One more scripture before we jump into the origins of the holiday. First Peter 3, go all the way towards the back of your New Testament. I think many of you know this, but this was actually written to a suffering uh, church, and here's what it says. First Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Set him apart as Lord. It's written to Christians, so it's something that a Christian has to do, is continually set Jesus Christ as Lord in your heart in the core of who you are. First Peter 3.15, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being what? Always be ready to make a defense. There's our word, apologia, where we get apologetics. To everyone who asks you, if someone asks you, you need to be ready to do what? To give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with what? Gentleness and reverence or gentleness and respect. 
What you give defense to, what you speak to people is the hope that's in you. You are an ambassador of hope. If you haven't thought of yourself that way, may I suggest to you, if you're a Christian this morning, that that's how you start thinking about your life. You're an ambassador of hope. The hope that you have within you, the hope of Jesus Christ is what you want to preach to other people. And so you go around living out that hope, communicating that hope to people who frankly are largely hopeless. Now, not everybody you meet is walking around looking like they're hopeless, but at some point, life is going to hit you right between the eyes. And you're going to be asking questions about answers. Whether you live on the top of the hill and your bank account has big numbers or you live on the bottom of the hill and you have next to nothing, you're going to start asking some deep questions about life and its meaning and why I'm here. And does my life have any purpose? And what should I be living for? What should I be even willing to die for? And this is the message that Paul went around sharing, that God is light and that there is a hope for the world and his name is Jesus. Now, in light of that, let's talk a little bit about Halloween and uh, what it is and where it came from. In 1848, millions of Irish immigrants poured into America as a result of the potato famine. With this sudden influx, the holiday of Druidism found its new home on alien shores. Halloween, by the way, was not largely practiced in America until 1928. But because America, the United States, was a melting pot of immigrants, immigrants typically carried in their traditions. Some of those traditions may have been good, some of them not so good. They may have had Christian origins, some of them may have had non-Christian origins. And so here's what happened. The holiday was embraced around 1928 in our country. Halloween is big business. It is currently a merchandising gold mine for stores. In fact, it is the most popular marketing event next to Christmas in our culture. Under the heading uh, from Fortune.com, the frightening amount Americans spend on Halloween, it says Americans uh, like to splurge on Halloween, so much so that the total spending for the holiday this year is expected to be $8.4 billion dollars. This is a $1.5 billion increase from 2015, according to the National Retail Federation's annual survey. Uh, The increase is partly due to the average of each family spending about $83 uh, per family. And this is a jump of about $8. Overall, Americans are slated to spend a whopping $3.1 billion on costumes, $2.5 billion on candy, and decorations, and $390 million on greeting cards, according to this survey. Now, I'm hoping that most of the $2.5 billion spent on candy is Snickers bars. <laughs> because Snickers is really the only candy. Can I get a witness? Anybody agree? Okay, maybe not. <laughs> and so... Retailers are saying that people are now getting ready earlier and earlier for Halloween, usually a couple months before. You may have noticed in your neighborhood that more and more people are decorating their homes for Halloween. To further highlight Halloween's popularity, approximately 80% of Americans will decorate their homes for Christmas. Approximately 50% or more will decorate their homes for Halloween. 
Among adults, Halloween has become the third most popular party activity behind the Super Bowl and New Year's Eve. And so it is a big night. It's a, it's a night, whatever definition, whatever history, whatever background you have, usually people are doing something on this evening. It's also interesting, you may have heard this from Brad Dacus of the Pacific Justice Institute, that Christian holidays that celebrate the birth of Christ, his resurrection, have been virtually eliminated from the public school system. Only Halloween, with its themes of the occult, Satan, and witchcraft, is still allowed in public or most public school districts. So there, there is obviously a little bit of a problem when Christian holidays are being booted out, but an occult type of holiday is being celebrated. Travis Allen, who's writing for Grace to You, comments. He says, The question, how should Christians respond to Halloween? Is it irresponsible for parents to let their children trick-or-treat? What about Christians who refused any kind of celebration during the seasons? Are they, are during this season, are they overreacting? And this is based upon the question or the idea that there are extremes. What is the church to do with a holiday that has these kinds of origins? How should we respond as Christians? Is it full non-participation? Is it a, is it some middle ground? Is it okay to take your kids trick-or-treating? I'll tell you, my, my views have kind of morphed and changed a little bit over the years. When my kids were younger, I pretty much said, no costumes. Uh, we will, we'll give out candy, but we'll, we'll let people come to our home. And when they come to our home, we'll give a gospel tract with the candy. Not a bad idea. Some, some Christians decided to even be more aggressive and go door to door. And they would offer people something, including a gospel tract. Not a bad idea. Maybe you get together with some Christians in your neighborhood and you... Uh, you can share the hope of the gospel. You can get into conversations, that kind of thing. And uh, I will tell you this, that I was asked to do an interview on KBRT, and uh, the hosts of the show were asking my opinion ab- about Halloween. And I said it has really changed a little bit. I've become a little bit less militant, I guess you'd say, in looking at how we can best respond and my kids are saying, why did you wait so long, Dad? All, all we wanted to do was dress up like Superman. Come on. When I was a kid, um, my sister and I really enjoyed Halloween. It was something we looked forward to. And, of course, there was nothing connected to the occult, nothing to the dark stuff, no witchcraft. We just wanted to dress up like Batman and Superman and our heroes and jump around in costumes and, and get sugared out. That was, our, it was a dream day for us. Come on now. Dress up like your superhero and eat a bunch of candy and it's okay on that night. Woo! Yeah. Anyway. And so we have to find, I think, as parents, grandparents, those who are wrestling with this idea of what we do on a night like this, uh, we have to find a place that we can find, say our conscience is going to be okay. Uh Same author I was quoting says, Christians should respond to Halloween with cautionary wisdom. Some people fear the activity of Satanists or pagan witches, but the actual incidence of Satanic-associated crime is very low. The real threat on Halloween is from the social problems that attend sinful behavior, like drunk driving, pranksters and vandals, unsupervised children. Like any other day of the year, Christians should exercise caution as wise stewards of their possessions and protectors of their families. 
Christian young people should stay away from secular Halloween parties since those are breeding grounds for trouble. Christian parents can protect their children by keeping them well-supervised and restricting uh, treat consumption to those goodies received from trusted sources. I know, you know, those of you and those of you who are kids in the room, one day you'll understand what your parents go through. We just want to make sure that if you're going to eat something, some candy, especially if it's a Snickers, we want to test it first. We want to make sure it's okay. You've seen some of those commercials where the, or the YouTube videos where the kid's all upset. He says, what happened to my Halloween candy? And mom or dad says, well, I have to confess this, son. I, I ate it. And you watch the kids react in different ways. Have you guys seen these videos? And some of the kids just go crazy. How could you do that? You've destroyed my life. And other kids say, it's okay, mommy or daddy. I forgive you. Anyway, it's a true test of your spirituality. Indeed. It's almost like when you come to church when the Dodgers are playing... It's a true test of your spirituality. I was here Wednesday night, or yeah, was it Wednesday night? Yeah. Dodgers were playing. So a lot of spiritual people in the room that night. Anyway. Now, it is true that there are themes of Halloween that uh, are from the morbidly supernatural, but they've been pretty much sanitized for popular consumption. So... Christians should not respond to Halloween like superstitious pagans do because greater is he that is in us than what? He that is in the world. So we don't have to freak out. I was telling uh, the group recently, we were going through the Mark of the Beast and I said, look, if if your food totals up to $6.66, be calm, don't freak out. Don't say, I have to buy some gum and get it off that number. It's all right. Look, there's a specific meaning to that, and it doesn't have to do with if your food totaled $6.66, okay? Christians need to calm down and understand that our God is on the throne. Our God reigns. But there are pagans who are, and when I say a pagan, I'll define that in a second, who are, you know, they think that there's something special about this night, and this is a little bit of the history that we have to talk about. And so uh, we have to understand uh, the extremes and find that place where we can be wise and share the truth with people. One thing that we do know, and this is found in Deuteronomy, let's go over there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, is the children of Israel were warned not, warned not to embrace the ways of the pagan cultures. Let me go ahead and define the word pagan. The word pagan doesn't necessarily mean a person who's just secular or non-religious. A pagan, technically, is a person who believes in multiple gods or goddesses and who believes that those gods and goddesses are connected to nature and that it's often expressed in something called pantheism. Pantheism is all God. Pan is all. Theism means God. And they believe God is in everything. So they believe that God's in the trees, God's uh, perhaps in animals and so forth, in nature, and they see gods and goddesses in everything. So some years ago, I was 
helping a young man try to make the high school baseball team, and I was hitting him fly balls, and he was missing a lot of them because he hadn't played baseball for a long time. And there was a guy out in center field in the park, and he was doing some of this kind of stuff. (sighs) He was just doing some weird movements. So I was just kind of watching him and keeping an eye on him, and I had the kid out in center field. And so when we went to collect the baseballs, I said, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing fine. And I said, what are you doing? He goes, well, I just like to get in touch with nature. By the, I like to feel the energy around me. I said, well, I said, I'm a Christian. What do you think about Jesus? Oh, Jesus is pretty cool. Every now and then I like to go to church just to feel the energy in the building. <laughs> I'm serious. So I said, well, <laughs> what do you think about Jesus? And could you stop moving around like that for just a couple of minutes? Oh, Jesus is pretty cool. I like him. Yeah. I said, you know, Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Oh, the movement stopped. Well, I don't believe that. Well, that's what Jesus said. And you just said you thought he's pretty cool. Well, he said I'm the way to God. So what do you think about that? Well, the conversation quickly ended. We collected our baseballs, but here's what we have to be able to do. We have to be able to, just in the normal, everything, everyday things of life, to share the truth of Jesus. And sometimes we only have a brief moment of time. Deuteronomy 18, verse 9 says, When you enter the land, Deuteronomy 18, 9, which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, something that the ancients did under a god called Molech, one who uses divination, we'll talk about that in a second, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell or a medium or spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is what? Detestable to the Lord. It seems like God has a pretty dim view of those kinds of things. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. If you want to know why the nations were driven out of the promised land, that's part of the reason right there. God drove them out because of what they did. Their religious practices were detestable to the Lord. You shall be blameless, 13, before the Lord your God. For those nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you... The Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Moses is pointing to Jesus from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. And so somewhere in the past, probably somewhere around 1,000 to even 100 BC, there was a group called the Druids. The Druids were from the area of the British Isles, and they were kind of like the pagans or the New Agers of their day. And they got involved in what's called nature worship. And so they thought gods, goddesses were in everything, in the trees, in the animals. That's why a lot of those people who are in these areas are very environmentally uh, involved because they believe in protecting the environment. They're doing something to uh, help with uh, what they worship. And so they began to celebrate a holiday called, it's spelled S-M-S-A-M-H-A-I-N, Samhain, 
But as you read a little bit more on, on this, they say it's pronounced Sawen, Sawen. And this is a night, and remember, this is what they believed. This is not what we believe. This is what they believed. They believed that the celebrations of the seasons were the most important thing. So when it moved from, for example, uh, into the winter season and the days got shorter and the trees were not producing crops and that kind of thing, at the change of the season, they would call it a festival. They believed that something spiritually happened. They believed that on that night of, they wouldn't call it Halloween, but on this night of October the 31st, kind of in that changed into the winter season, the veil between the living and the dead was the thinnest. So they thought that this was the time of year that spirits could walk among the people. And uh, if a loved one who had passed on, you know, had died, they could revisit their homes and that kind of thing. And this is where some of the stories of ghosts come from. So just so you understand, this is not what we believe, this is what they believe. And they believe that on this night, ghosts could be especially active. So some of you have seen movies and stuff, and maybe you've participated in this where people tell ghost stories, right? And they put the flashlight in their face on a dark night. Many moons ago, there was a dog, you know, and whatever. Anyway, thank you for the background sound there, by the way. Thanks for listening to A Step Closer. Let us know your thoughts on today's topic. You can email us at contact at walkintruth.com. You can also let us know a topic or question you'd like us to answer and discuss. Again, email us at contact at walkintruth.com. Thank you.